This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, for our 159th episode, we discuss The Treasure of the Sierra Madre from 1948, written and directed by John Huston, starring Humphrey Bogart as Fred C. Dobbs, Walter Huston as Howard, Tim Holt as Bob Curtin, Bruce Bennett as James Cody, Barton McLean as Pat McCormick, Alfonso Bedoya as Gold Hat, Arturo Soto Rangel as El Presidente, Manuel Donde as El Jefe, Jose Torve as Pablo, and Margarito Luna as Pancho. Recognition for this movie? The Treasure of the Sierra Madre was wide released on January 24th, 1948, and just celebrated its 75th anniversary earlier this year. The film is an adaptation of B. Trabin's 1927 novel of the same name, set in 1925. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre would go on to make roughly $4.1 million due to its multiple releases, and despite its very modest initial opening, on an estimated budget of $2.5 million. But there is disagreement on whether it was a top-grossing film of 1948. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre received four Oscar nominations and won three awards, Best Supporting Actor for Walter Houston, and Best Director and Best Writing Screenplay for John Houston, his only Oscars. It failed to win Best Picture, which went to Hamlet for Laurence Olivier. There has been controversy since the 1949 ceremony because of the Academy's choice not to nominate Bogart for the Academy Award for Best Actor, a choice that modern critics and Academy members have since condemned. Bogart's performance has been named the best of his career, British actor Daniel Day-Lewis said that his second Oscar-winning performance as vicious oil baron Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood was heavily inspired by Bogart's portrayal of Fred C. Dobbs. In 1990, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. It was among the first 100 films to be selected. The American Film Institute recognized the film on the following list. AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies from 1998 as the number 30 movie of all time, AFI's 100 Years 100 Thrills at number 67, AFI's 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes with badges? We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges at number 36. AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies 10th Anniversary Edition from 2007 as the number 38 film of all time. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre currently holds a 100% rating among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 98 score on Metacritic, not an easy feat, and a 4.2 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, Dad, what is your relationship to this movie? I really don't have a relationship to the movie. This is a movie that I've always wanted to see, and for some reason, just never got around to seeing it. So this is my first watch. I'd only seen it one other time before this, but I remember the first time being during the pandemic. I think I watched it with Sarah at the time, who was staying with me during the pandemic. And I do remember that I was instantly drawn to several of the biggest performances, which were really, I think, what comes out of this film. I have always been one who has found it difficult to judge 
good acting performances. But if I were to ever think of what great acting is, this movie is a key example for me. I believe I mentioned to you when this came up on the list that I thought this was Humphrey Bogart's best performance. And apparently I'm not alone in that thinking. Having watched it, I think I would now agree. I I, I did think that um, previously his best performance was in uh, The Cane Mutiny, but now I think this is better. I think it has so many layers to it because of the slow progression and evolution of his character over the course of the movie. I think the more charismatic performance, and I know I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, is Walter Houston. And I think the first time you watch it, you're really drawn to him. But as you start to peel back the layers of the movie, I think it's really Bogart's performance that holds everything together. Yeah, I I agree. I think he is really what the film becomes about. It's his own rise and fall that is the subject of the movie. So what do you think this film is about? How greed can warp you. It can consume you. It can cause you to take shortcuts. It can cause you to take dalliances in areas you don't want to. It can compromise your morals. It can cause you to do things that you would not normally do or even consider doing. I think the skeleton key scene in this film is when they're in the flop house in the first time they meet Howard and he's explaining how gold corrupts men's souls and really just substitute the word greed for gold. And I think you have the key to the movie. I think one of the lasting questions I have is whether greed universally corrupts because Curtin seems to be a little bit more removed from the issues of greed, although he experiences some of the paranoia. And Howard, as a character, seems above all of the issues that come with greed, having lived and experienced greed in a different way over time. And so he can somehow be more objective about it. But but I think one of the lingering questions becomes, is greed corruptible to everyone? It can be. I've seen greed close up. I've seen greed become all-consuming. I've seen greed compromise marriages, relationships, friendships, families. I don't think everyone necessarily, well, greed does, but I don't think everyone necessarily will be greedy or can be allow greed to consume them. Are you potentially more susceptible to greed if you come from a more desperation background or a more desperate background? I don't think so, because I see a lot of wealthy people who are very greedy and who will think nothing of abusing their power or their privilege to protect their money or their wealth. And that happens a lot. So they grew up in wealth. They're going to try to maintain their wealth. I think greed is universal from wherever you start. So given that one of the more famous lines in all of cinema is greed for lack of a better term is good. Would you say that greed has actual good characteristics to it and that it can potentially be harnessed for your benefit or is it ultimately going to be tragic? No, it's not good because think about it. Who said it? Gordon Gecko, named after a lizard. 
And what ends up happening to him? He's in prison. You can say that it's good, but ultimately it's not. And anybody who is greedy will ultimately destroy themselves by that greed unless they somehow can harness it and stop. Well, let's give some more background to this movie. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? Yes. In The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, director John Huston takes us on a journey into the heart of greed and paranoia. Set in Mexico during the 1920s, the film follows three down-on-their-luck Americans as they embark on a quest for gold in the Sierra Madre Mountains. Humphrey Bogart delivers a career-defining performance as Fred C. Dobbs, a drifter who becomes consumed by the allure of wealth, along with fellow prospectors Curtin, Tim Holt, and Howard, Walter Houston, the director's father. In the end, Dobbs faces not only the physical challenges of the harsh terrain, but also the psychological challenges of trusting one another. As the trio uncovers a promising vein of gold, tensions rise and paranoia sets in. Leading to a gripping finale, the challenges are perception of loyalty and morality. Did you know? Though the daily rushes impressed Jack L. Warner, he nearly went berserk with the weekly expenditures. After viewing one scene, Warner threw up his hands and shouted to producer Henry Blank, Yeah, they're looking for gold, all right. Mine. During another screening of rushes, Warner watched Dobbs stumble along in the desert for water. Warner jumped up in the middle of the scene and shouted to a gaggle of executives, If that SOB doesn't find water soon, I'll go broke. Warner had reason to be upset. John Huston and Blank led him to believe that the film would be an easy picture to make and that they would be in and out of Mexico in a matter of weeks. Because Warner was notorious for not actually reading scripts, he assumed the film was a B-movie western. As the full extent of Houston's plans became apparent, Warner nearly blew a gasket. He was especially unhappy with the way the film ended, arguing that audiences wouldn't accept it. Ironically, Warner was correct, since the initial box office take was as impressive as Fool's Gold. But the film was a huge critical success, and in its many re-releases, it more than earned its original investment of $3 million. Did you know? In his Oscar acceptance speech, Walter Houston said, Many, many years ago, I brought up a boy and said to him, Son, if you ever become a writer, try to write a good part for your old man sometime. Well, by cracky, that's what he did. Did you know? John Huston stated that working with his father on this picture and his dad's subsequent Oscar win were among the favorite moments of his life. Did you know? Initially thrilled at Walter Huston's scene-stealing performance, as the shoot wore on, producer Henry Blank started to have second thoughts about Houston upstaging the film's star, Humphrey Bogart. And so John Huston started to get notes from the studio telling him to tone down his father's performance. Did you know? Humphrey Bogart was quite fond of working with the director John Huston and enjoyed his experience working on this film. However, Bogart found Huston to be quite the perfectionist, which led to some grueling and exhausting days on location. Bogart sarcastically recalled that John wanted everything to be perfect. If he saw a nearby mountain that could serve for photographic purposes, that mountain was not good. Too easy to reach. If we could get to a location site without fording a couple of streams and walking through the snake-infested areas in the scorching sun, then it wasn't quite right. Did you know? On seeing the depth of Walter Houston's performance, Humphrey Bogart famously said, One Houston is bad enough, but two are murder. Did you know? 
Humphrey Bogart's portrayal of Dobbs in this film was cited by Steven Spielberg as the main inspiration for the character of Indiana Jones. Did you know? John Huston played a prank on Humphrey Bogart. In the scene where he has to reach under a rock for hidden gold and is told that an extremely venomous Gila monster had crawled under there, Houston put a mousetrap where he had to reach. Bogart, acting appropriately as if a Gila monster actually was under the rock, jumped several feet backwards when the mousetrap snapped on his finger. And with that, we'll take our first break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we are discussing the Best Picture winner of 2012, 12 Years a Slave. Directed by Steve McQueen, written by John Ridley, starring Chiwetel Ejiofor, Michael K. Williams, Michael Fassbender, Benedict Cumberbatch, Paul Dano, Paul Giamatti, Brad Pitt, Sarah Paulson, and Lupita Nyong'o. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Dad, best performance. Who do you have down? Bogart. I did too. I, I I just can't find too many flaws with his performance. I know Walter Houston is credited and he got the Oscar and such, but the film wouldn't work without Borgart or his performance. Again, agreed. I'll point back to my earlier comment. I think that Houston's performance is the one that easily stands out upon initial viewing. His is the more surface level where he gets to play the wise old man kind of the fatherly figure in this movie. And so all of his sage advice really seems to hit home with the audience a lot easier. But I think the more complicated, layered, complex performance is Bogart's. And the evolution of his character throughout the film is a much more difficult and nuanced transition as he goes along. And because of that, I think from where he starts as a rather desperate vagrant, more or less to the middle portion where he's recognizing the opportunity that he has to then go to the paranoia and then the full-out madness by the end of the film. It's a really interesting character study and something that, if they didn't shoot it in sequence, I'm not sure how he pulled it off, to be quite honest, because that character feels like it has to go from point A to point B to point C to point D, and you can't really miss a beat. So to go in and out of the different structures of this character, I think it's an absolute crime that he didn't win, let alone be nominated for Best Actor. Who do you have for secondary? I had John Huston. I think I saw one place where this was compared to his magnum opus. And as good as some of his other films are, I just think this movie speaks to a much larger human condition than any of his other movies. I think the closest example outside of that would probably be the Maltese Falcon, but it's not nearly as thoughtful, as deep, as well done as this film is. And I think this is probably the peak, at least performance-wise, by Houston, by Walter Houston, and by Bogart. And so really, I had to figure out how to give all three of them some version of the award. I would assume then Walter Houston is most charismatic. He's easily the most likable character in the movie. Yeah, I concur on both. I mean, and we'll talk about that. I mean, the the little scene where um, <laughs> where he's dancing because he finds the gold vein. I mean, that's just, 
iconic and precious. I did find some research about what he used as the inspiration for the jig, along with a lot of other things that I didn't include in the Did You Know section just for time. But there are a lot of really great notes on this film that you can find if you just go looking, even on a surface level. I think this movie is fascinating. I was really excited to discuss this one. And I think it's got so much depth and heart and universality to it that it's really hard for me to pick too much at it. Yeah. And it's career defining for a lot of the people that were in this film. So, yes, not only is it the most charismatic for Walter Houston, but it may be one of the most charismatic supporting characters in film. It, it is an extremely well done, well developed supporting characters. It, it rivals any film or any best supporting actor winner of any film I can think of offhand. I don't know if there's too many that I'd find better. Some may be as good, but not better. Well, and I think this is one of those examples that we've pointed to multiple times on the show where a part just marries so well to an actor. I think that he was born to play this role, and it's really hard for me to envision anyone else having done this. Yeah. Maybe the lone exception being Walter Brennan, who is also in the movie, but that's about it. He is? Apparently, he was on at least one of the cast lists, I think, in IMDb. (laughs) I don't remember seeing him. I don't either. (laughs) Okay. Again, one of the great trivia questions of all time. A three-time Oscar winner. Now, one of the great trivia questions of all time is whether Jack Benny is actually in Casablanca. Maybe to you. Well, apparently this was one that Roger Ebert used to uh, do screenings at his house like every year and would like bet people that they couldn't find Jack Benny in the film. So are you saying when it's coming up for a second revisit later this year that you're going to like do an all out extensive search to figure out where in the picture he is? I I know about where he's supposed to be. I've watched it. I'm not sure. He was working at uh, Warner Brothers when that film was done. And and it was a bone because originally Jack Benny was supposed to play George M. Cohan, and then they dumped him in favor of uh, Cagney. And so Warner said, eh, if you want to walk on this film, go ahead. So he's supposedly an extra. Well, we'll have to keep that in mind soon. Let's move to best scene then. I have nominated By a Fellow American a Meal. So pretty much that opening sequence where he's constantly interacting with John Huston's character. I have the first night in the flop house, which I mentioned before. I have the scene with the fool's gold. I have late night paranoia where both Bogart and Holt go out of their tent and are looking at their own stash and are constantly suspicious of everybody else. It's the first real inklings that Something is not sitting right, and they're being corrupted by their own greed. We Don't Need No Stinking Badges, which I think is probably the best action sequence of the entire film, and one of the most energetic. Did Cody Deserve a Share? Dobbs Attacks Curtain. Dobbs' Demise. And then The Fond Farewell. Okay. Any of these or anything you would like to add? 
No, the only well one, and that is discovering the gold vein, and that's where Houston does his dance. It wasn't my most indelible, but it's my second most indelible moment. Fair enough. So, what do you think is the best scene? Bogey, uh, quote unquote, kills Curtin. Well, he doesn't actually kill him. That's why I said quote unquote. He thinks he does. His conscience, his paranoia, his guilt is so palpable throughout the entire scene. Um, you don't know how he's able to not go completely mad. I really do like that scene, but I think because it's so overt, I went with late night paranoia, which is also my favorite scene in the movie, just because it's a much more subtle scene that's really building towards something that you can see the seeds of it being planted for what's to come later in the movie. And you've gotten enough inklings. I think this movie does a good job of providing a certain level of suspense, knowing that they're eventually going to turn on each other. And this is really where it starts to ramp up for me. And I really like the subtlety between Curtin and Dobbs in that scene, as well as Howard and just kind of the interactions. It's one of the few scenes where it's the three of them and you can just sense the mistrust and the unsettled nature of both of them, particularly in Bogart. Favorite scene for you? The badges scene. I, I just love that scene. I thought it was well-crafted. It, it's kind of like in music when they do a song, they create a bridge, a pause in the building tension, and has you change focus and look at something completely different and think about something completely different. So then as Dobbs continues his road to insanity, it's more meaningful. So I think it's my favorite scene because it makes the back end of the film better, but also because it is such a great action sequence with so many memorable scenes and events. I would tend to agree. I think it's, like I mentioned before, the most kinetic scene of the entire movie. But I do think that that still, while being somewhat of a pause, and certainly as a distraction from the main plot line of Bogart going mad, I still think there are setup or seeds planted within that scene because you have the precursor discussion of what they're going to do with Cody. And I think that's very important to insert into the plot line there. All of that is leading to that eventual gunfight. And yes, the decision is somewhat taken out of their hands and they become somewhat fortunate in that regard, but it's still forcing them into an untenable situation and further driving up the stakes of the movie. Most indelible for me is a scene you already mentioned. It's Dobbs attacking Curtin. It's the inevitability of what we've felt was coming for the entirety of the movie but to see it quite actualize in that final moment is still thrilling. How about for you? I thought about most indelible being the badges scene. And then I also indicated my second one was Walter Houston's dance when they hit the gold strike. Ultimately, I decided it was the end, which is it just showed the futility of greed. (laughs) That at the end, it's still not worth your life. And that's ultimately what ended up being the situation for Dobbs. He traded his life for gold that he couldn't take with him. 
And with that, we'll take our second break and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, starting in May, I'm partnering with Adam Hitchcock of the Streaming Circuit Podcast to start a special series on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where we will be discussing each film from the original Iron Man up through Avengers Endgame. The first half of each show will be on his feed, and the second half we will apply this Stanley rubric to each film to determine the greatest Marvel film of all time. Don't miss out. Make sure you are subscribed to both feeds to get these episodes. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Norman Reynolds, 89, British production designer, did uh, Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Empire of the Sun was an Oscar winner for production design in 1978 and 1982. For both of the productions that you already mentioned before, he actually got his start as art director for the original Star Wars, but would go on to be much more hands-on and in the production design of Empire Strikes Back, and then created most of the look of Raiders of the Lost Ark, including the idol from the opening sequence of Raiders that we've discussed multiple times on this show. Just an all-time classic, behind-the-scenes person that I had no idea who he was, but I just feel a debt of gratitude for all of the things he has touched that have been so meaningful to my movie-going experience throughout my life. Bill Butler, 101. He was an American cinematographer. He did Jaws, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Grease as well as Child's Play, Stripes, and The Conversation. And I would argue that he might be the most influential cinematographer of the 70s that's not named Gordon Willis. The fact that we have discussed on the show that he, I think he was the one that said, you cannot shoot Jaws on an open sea boat on a tripod. You will make the audience sick and put it on a handheld makes that movie. (laughs) Yeah. Two-time Emmy winner in 1977 and 84 as well for uh, a couple of different TV movies that he did back in those years. Ingvar Herdwell, 88, Swedish actor, was in Beck, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and Children's Island. And I apologize that on our website, I don't have a linked obituary. Unfortunately, I think this is the second, maybe third time that this has happened but he did not have an English language obituary. I could only find ones in Swedish. And finally, Michael Lerner, 81 American actor, was in Barton Fink, Eight Men Out, and Elf. As well as Harlem Nights, and he was Oscar nominated for the movie Barton Fink. He is a almost instantly recognizable character actor that I'm sure if you've watched a movie from the late 80s through about the mid-2000s, TV or movies for that matter, you would have seen him. And I think that it's somebody that if you just look up a picture, you'll have some level of that guyness immediately upon seeing him. And so while we did have only a few people on this list, it feels like kind of an unusual week, but also one of importance for why we do this in memoriam section on the show. We're recognizing three people that I probably did not know their names at all going into this, but have profound effects on 
my movie going experience throughout my life. And so I am just glad and grateful that we are celebrating them, even if it is upon their passing. And so with that, we give all of these a moment of silence in their honor for their contributions to movies, TV, production, cinematography, and all of the things that go into making the entertainment that we so richly love. Thank you. Let's go to best funniest lines. I wouldn't say that there are really any funny lines in this movie, but I had a few that really stuck with me. I will go for the obvious just off the top. Gold hat. Badges? We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. And given how often you said that line during my childhood, the fact that you hadn't seen this movie up until I'm 32 is a little surprising, to say the least. I know. Howard. Ah, as long as there's no find, the noble brotherhood will last. But when the piles of gold begin to grow, that's when the trouble starts. Howard. I know what gold does to men's souls. Curtain. You know, the worst ain't so bad when it finally happens. Not half as bad as you figure it'll be before it's happened. Howard, say answer me this one, will you? Why is gold worth some 20 bucks an ounce? Flophouse bum. I don't know, because it's scarce? Howard, a thousand men say go searching for gold. After six months, one of them's lucky. One out of a thousand. His find represents not only his own labor, but that of 999 others to boot. That's 6,000 months, 500 years, scrambling over a mountain, going hungry and thirsty. An ounce of gold, mister, is worth what it is because of the human labor that went into the finding and the getting of it. Dobbs, conscience, what a thing. If you believe you've got a conscience, it'll pester you to death. But if you don't believe you've got one, what could it do to you? Makes me sick. All this talking and fussing about nonsense. Howard, water's precious, sometimes maybe more precious than gold. Howard, We've wounded this mountain. It's our duty to close her wounds. It's the least we can do to show our gratitude for all the wealth she's given us. If you guys don't want to help me, I'll do it alone. Curtain. You talk about that mountain like it's a real woman. Dobbs. She's been a lot better to me than any woman I ever knew. Keep your shirt on, old timer. Sure, I'll help you. I'm out. Cody. You know you've got to hand it to the Mexicans when it comes to swift justice. Once the Federales get their mitts on a criminal, they know just what to do with him. They hand him a shovel, tell him to dig. When he's dug deep enough, they tell him to put the shovel down, smoke a cigarette, and say his prayers. In another five minutes, he's being covered over with the dirt he just dug. Let's go to the Stanley rubric. Legacy is up first. I will give you the choice to go first or second. Go ahead. Legacy... Let me give you a few points on the industry side of things that I didn't put in the recognition. Critic Leonard Moulton listed The Treasure of the Sierra Madre as one of the 100 must-see films of the 20th century. The Directors Guild of America called it the 57th best directed movie of all time. Director Stanley Kubrick listed The Treasure of the Sierra Madre as his fourth favorite film of all time in a 1963 edition of Cinema Magazine. Director Sam Raimi ranked it as his favorite film of all time in an interview with Rotten Tomatoes, 
and director Paul Thomas Anderson watched it at night before bed while writing There Will Be Blood. Director Spike Lee listed it as one of the 87 films every aspiring director should see. And Breaking Bad creator Vince Gilligan also cited the film as one of his personal favorites and has said that Dobbs was a key influence in creating the character of Walter White. A key scene from the film was emulated in Buyout, the sixth episode of the series' fifth season. This has got to be a five for Legacy as far as the industry is concerned. If you have some of the biggest named directors of all time citing this as an influence, if you have Steven Spielberg citing the character of Dobbs as a template for one of the more other legendary characters of all time cinema in Indiana Jones, it's an absolute five for the industry. And I really don't think that you're going to disagree with me much on that point of view. So it's really going to come down to the audience level for this movie. And while I think this is a movie that everybody should see, in fact, I would say go so far as to say this should be one of the essential watching movies for everybody. How many people know this is the name of the movie? I think if you said the We Ain't Got No Badges line, that's more infamous than even the title of the movie. I don't think anybody could name who directed who starred in or was a part of this film or any of the awards that it garnered. And given that you quoted the most famous line to me multiple years as a kid, but had never seen it yourself, I'm going to give it a very gracious two. And that's going a little bit farther than I think I should have. No, I think it's, I think you're a little under. And the reason why is, is it, it's a film that you and your generation am not overly familiar with, but older people have more proclivity towards have seen it, understand it, know who's in it, at least as far as Bogart, and have some appreciation. Is it prevalent? No. But it's better than what you think, at least among a particular older generation. So I went with a three- for that, and I don't think I'm generous on that. I think you are. You haven't provided any evidence outside of just rudimentary, I would say, anecdotal evidence to support that claim. Uh, like I said, I go and when we're talking about these films, I make suggestions or talk to people that are within my circle, and most everybody that I talk to have either seen it or appreciates it or considers it a great movie, a classic. The younger the people are that I've had associations with and I've talked about it, the less likely they are to be familiar with it. And again, that's anecdotal. Your circle is fairly homogenous. What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to develop a circle of people like influenced by Southeast Asian culture or something that I don't have access to? I, I, I don't get it. I mean, I have to go by what I have to do. No, but I don't think you can use that as the basis for an argument. Okay. At least not the complete basis. I think if you lined up, you know, our filled Fiserv forum and you did a poll on the Jumbotron, do you think that there is recognition of the title of the name of the movie? And if you gave a multiple choice as to four actors in this movie, how many of them would be able to correctly guess which one was not in the movie? If you just said Humphrey Bogart, Walter Houston, Tim Holt, and John Wayne, how many of them are getting that right? 
Um, if you're giving all four of them, yeah, yeah, I can see that. But if you're talking about the blind itself, what the movie is ultimately about, that it has both Bogart and Walter Houston, I think that number would be 35 or 40%. Yeah, but even that would be below a three. The median point would be 2.5 just on the name recognition. That's why I went with a two. I mean, ultimately, we're going to balance this out, and it's going to end up being a compromise where it's 2.5 for the audience share of this, and it'll be a 7.5 overall for the average. But I don't think that my two is that far under even what you're valuing it as. I think you're inflating it because you'd like this film to score higher on our list. Okay, I'll go down to 2.5 just because you're beating me up on... My arguments, I guess. Whatever. Just trying to hold you accountable. Somebody has to. Yeah, okay. So with your lowering of your score, that puts it at a 7.25 average between the two of us. Impact significance? Given that this was an era where we had Best Picture winners or certain Best Picture nominees often win you know, at least a handful of awards, And if you were winning Best Director, you were likely winning Best Film. That was not the days like we have now where they were splitting between Best Director and Best Picture. The fact that this wins the Golden Globe for Best Picture and wins the Oscar and Golden Globe for Best Director, but somehow goes to Hamlet, which was controversial at the time. I think I've mentioned on the show before that being a non-American movie, it was a big deal in the room at the time which seems rather tame now, but it's like the 1940 version of Parasite winning Best Picture, just for reference sake. And the fact that its box office was extraordinarily low. Now, I don't know how much of the re-releases after the fact provided audiences a, a chance to catch up with this movie, but I've seen everywhere from estimates that it only made like 200 and some thousand dollars in its initial release all the way up to it maybe made a million dollars in its first run. It's really hard to get a lot of the great box office numbers at the time. From an industry standpoint, it was critically well-reviewed. I think it's a better movie and a better received movie than Hamlet, but Hamlet was the more, well, we need to give Olivier his chance and give him his moment, and so we're going to reward him, even though we're giving Houston, you know, all the Oscar politicking BS that we got during the 70s, 80s, and 90s, where, you know, it wasn't your time quite yet, crap. And so we end up rewarding, like, Al Pacino for Scent of a Woman instead of Godfather <laughs> Part Two, Because we needed to give an award to Art Carney. <laughs> That's the type of stuff I'm talking about. But ultimately, I have to slightly drop the industry score just beneath where the legacy is. I think the more time has gone on, the better and more classic this movie has gotten to, which will obviously be reflected in the later category. I'm going to go with a four for the industry and a 2.5 for the audience at the time. I'm going to kind of split the baby on the audience portion of this because it's really hard to tell what the audience reaction was at the time. So that's 6.5 for me. I'm going to go agree with your four for the industry because it wasn't a clean sweep. There wasn't a cross the board nominations for all the actors, but I don't think the public received this film very well. And it's hard to tell 
how many of the re-releases were done and when they were done to know whether it was within the five years of the category. So I went with it too because it didn't make anything. And I, I think this was just one of these situations where the film was ahead of its time because the concepts of what it was trying to do, it was more artistic, it was psychological. At a time when psychoanalysis was just starting to become more prevalent in culture, I don't think it connected with people. I think it connected people 10, 15, 20 years later more than it did in uh, the late 40s when this was released. Well, due to its subject material and its depth, I just don't think it's nearly as crowd-pleasing of a movie. And so that probably dinged it in its initial run, even though I think it's one of the great classics of American cinema. But that's going to be a 6.25 average between the two of us. Novelty. Do you want to go first or second? I will go. It's novel because of the subject matter. Greed, betrayal, the fact that what about probably a quarter of the movie is in Spanish with no subtitles, so you have no idea what they're talking about, which made no sense to me why you would do that. And how it was done, I thought it was very novel. But it's still a prospecting movie. It's... Um, it's a, a film that takes place out in the desert. Um, it's kind of a, uh, not really a Western, but close to a Western. Let me ask you these couple of questions before you get to your actual score then. Number one, I've always cited that, let's say, excellence or the execution of things is a highlight to what I think novelty should be. Is this the best movie of John Huston's directing career and writing career? Probably. Is it the best movie of Walter Huston's career? Yes. Is it the best movie, well, is it the best performance of Bogart's career? Yes. I think that weighs on it as far as I'm concerned. And I'll also ask you, you were kind of beating around this here before I cut you off, but what is the genre of this film? And name me one other prospecting film that is notable <laughs> I mean it does have western elements to it but would you say this is in the same category as the Magnificent Seven no is it in the same category as High Noon no but those are films after it I understand so alright so let's take westerns before it is it in the same vein as Red River from the same year or Stagecoach no I think this is a movie without a true genre, and I think that makes it somewhat of a unicorn. So anyway, continue with your score. Well, I went with an 8.5, giving it just a little bit of points down because of the setting and what was involved and such. So that's where I went with. I think it has, as I mentioned, some unicorn factors to it, but I can't quite get to the point where it's a one-of-one film. I do think that there are shared elements and that part of the universality of this is what actually leads to where I'm going to go with classicness in the next category. But I ultimately went with a nine. So the average between us will be an 8.75. The novelty, and I forgot to mention this, part of the novelty is, is it's an element of greed. And when you look at John Huston's other great film, The Maltese Falcon, that, that the entire premise of that film ultimately was greed and betrayal. And so it seems to be a common theme among his films. 
or at least the two of his better films. Classicness, your category. I can't find anything wrong with the classicness of this film, except the portrayal of Mexicans. I thought it was a little stereotypical. And so I gave it a little bit down. And I gave it a quarter of a point down because the kid in the film is Robert Blake, who's kind of a pariah among Hollywood. So I went with an 8.75 for classicness. I was really trying to figure out where to put this one. I think this movie has elements of timelessness and universality that really drive what I think makes this movie a classic. It's also an accurate portrayal of life at the time. And I would have thought that you might have highlighted something such as the lack of a sense of a strong female presence in the movie. But given what history was at the time, the source material that Houston was drawing from, and how the movie's structured, I don't know where a strong female presence would have served this movie, even if they were to remake it now. I just don't know where it quite fits in without feeling shoehorned, if that makes any sense. Well, that's that's why I didn't bring it up, because I don't think it would fit. And yet the movie is somewhat diverse, even despite, you know, elements of 1940s racism that I think, if anything, is a little careless and maybe unintentional. And while our attitudes have changed, did it really take you that far out of the movie? No. So its themes are human. Its performances have not lessened at all for me from day one to now, 75 years later. I was really looking at giving this a 10, but I do want to give you a little bit of credence. So I will come down to a 9.5 for a couple of the elements you mentioned. So that's a 9.13 average between the two of us. Rewatchability. I have it as a 7.5. It doesn't quite go through the barrier that I think is an 8, which are like some of my more favorite watches of all time, or movies that I really would have great enjoyment in rewatching because I think I could glean a lot out of them. But this is important enough of a film to have it a 7.5 because I think this is a film that needs to be rewatched with some regularity, but it's just not going to be something that I can put on multiple times in a year and think this is a really fun film to watch. I went with an 8.5 because this is a film now that I've seen it, I need, I want to see it again and multiple times on a regular basis because I have a feeling that I'll glean more and more out of this every time I watch it. And so I actually, I can't give it any higher than that because, again, I have to be in the right frame of mood. If I'm having a rough day, this is not the feel-good comfort, the macaroni and cheese film that I'm going to put on. But if it's a Friday or Saturday night and we're looking for something, we can't agree on anything, this is easily something I could put on and sit and, and watch without any problem and would enjoy even though I've seen it before. So that is an 8 average between the two of us. For audience score, we had an 84% for Google users and a 95% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.85. And so to repeat the categories, we had a 7.25 for Legacy, 6.25 for Impact Significance, 8.75 for Novelty, 9.13 for Classicness, an 8 for Rewatchability, an 8.85 for audience score, 
giving us a final total of 48.23 and placing it on our list between The Social Network and Judgment at Nuremberg. Remaining questions for the film? I want to hypothetically place us in the situation that the presence of Cody forces the prospectors into. If given the choices between killing him, running him off, or cutting him in, what do you think that you would have done? And I don't mean in your high-mindedness that you automatically gravitate to, but what do you think in your heart of hearts you would have done? I don't know. I would not be in that position. I would hope that I would have cut him in. More likely than not, that's probably what I would have done because I can't imagine anything positive of uh, killing him and the potential problems associated with that. Running him off was not an option because that's just going to bring more problems than just cutting him in. I think that's the default as to the easiest way and the most safe way of dealing with the situation. Given that he is not asking for any of the cut of what you've already labored over, and given that there are bandits within the region that you need another able-bodied person to potentially fend off, I wouldn't have had nearly as much of a problem cutting him in on future profits. Despite that, and I tried to say, in your heart of hearts, so I'm going to appeal to the baser parts of myself. One, I would be way too afraid to actually kill someone, and it would corrupt my soul a lot more than whatever my greed would potentially be. Two, I would be way too afraid of what the potential consequences would be as if he turned me in. And so I think from whatever my baser instincts are for survival, cutting him in and trying to compromise that portion of me because I'm too much of a chicken shit would probably win out as opposed to, you know, the more aggressive play, which is to kill him and bury him in the desert. Yeah. So not necessarily from a place of high-mindedness, but from a point of nature, I suppose. Okay. All right, then. I want to discuss two different things for final thoughts for the week. Okay. One that I know that you can contribute towards, but first, did you watch this week's Succession? Yes, I did. Thank God, because I've been (laughs) waiting. Wow. I watched that on Sunday night. And it just went completely off in left field. And you're like, there's no way that they're going to kill him off this way, off screen. And in such a way that it just, it felt so helpless. It it might be one of the best episodes of television ever. I am constantly surprised and impressed how well this show is done. Yeah. And the intensity of it. My biggest mistake was starting that episode at 1030 at night. Well, you told me not to watch it on the treadmill. I watched it on the treadmill. Okay. I started it anyway, and then I finished it up in the room this morning. I was in Chicago on business, so I was on the treadmill, and then I went and started it, and then I went upstairs and showered, and then put it on and finished watching it while I was shaving and finishing getting dressed. But, okay, I understand your... (laughs) You're thinking of the intensity of this and such? I've had this twice. I lost my mother and got told over the phone that by my dad that she died of a heart attack. 
And then I have the nurses calling me and I'm two hours, two and a half hours away from where my dad is. And they tell me he's taken a sudden and dramatic turn for the worse and I need to leave. Well, before I could even get out of town, he was gone. So I've had this tw happen twice. So I understand and I understand the, the shock and such, and everybody handles things differently. But for me, when it was my mother, I knew that I had to be the one to take care of everything. So I'm the one who's making the or starting to make the arrangements. I have to deal your mother's a mat, uh, a basket case. Uh, my dad's numb. He can't even figure out what's going on. He just sits at the table and just stares blankly ahead in, in the dining room of the house. Uh, the uh, other person in my family uh, was completely useless. I had to deal with my grandparents. I had to let my aunt and my uncles know, uh, her two brothers and her sister. Uh, I'm handling this from a park or from a uh, park because I had been in court that day that I find out. That's how people handle it. I ended up knowing that I had to handle it. For the kids, I'm surprised at least one of them didn't try to immediately take charge of the situation and take control of the message and the company. Because all three of those characters had been in that situation. To me, it would have been a telltale that ultimately one of them would have stepped forward and that would have been the whole point is this is what ended up happening for one of the three to ultimately become the successor. I think ultimately what this shows is, is that none of them will be the successor, that they're not capable of doing it because none of them could handle the situation. If I thought any of them was closest, there are two moments. One, Shiv handling the statement and delivering it as best she could before she collapsed into a pile of goo again. And Kendall going to his, I guess, business mind acumen that I actually... Despite, I think, what the public narrative has been, I always thought was there, but he never really feels the confidence or support to push forward with that. And yes, he's made a lot of dumb decisions and he doesn't always think with the same killer aspect that his father always wanted him to. But of anybody that actually has the most business savvy, it's always been him, even though Roman was probably the closest to what his father was. And when he does that speech of everything we do today will always be what we did on the day our father died. To me, that was him stepping up for his siblings, even though he doesn't take control of everything. And it's one of the places that I thought was interesting is that I agree with you. You would have thought in the power vacuum, one of them would have stepped forward and none of them did. And so I do think that says something about them individually and what this show has been trying to say all along. But I also think it's somewhat in the shadow of what happened in the end of last season that all of them got together and they may be in a place where they have to work together and realize that their only strength is in uniting. And so I think that's where these last seven episodes are going to be really telling. But obviously we're recording this a week ahead of when everybody else is going to hear it. So they'll have had the benefit of episode four. I personally think what the situation is, is think of it this way. When you have a mighty oak, the grass underneath never grows well because it's in the shade. And I think that's the, the message 
that when you have these mighty oaks in industry, why the next generation seems to fail? Because they've never had to make the hard choices. They've never had to be in the sunlight. They've never had to exist or grow or move forward on their own. It's always been either given to them or they're in the shadow of what's going on above them. And so they're deficient. And I think that's part of why why we have this, the ultimate generations of titans of industry have not boded well for the companies that are left to them. It feels like you're talking directly to me. <laughs> I'm not talking directly to you. No, but, but I, I feel it nonetheless. Well, I understand. I know it's not always easy to be my son, so... It's not always things that you did or didn't do either. I know. It's just a matter of circumstance and what you've had to accomplish. And frankly, I have, by percentages, one of the easiest existences on the planet over the 32 years of my life. Well, and that's partly the problem, which is I struggled and I had to work and sacrifice and do a lot of really... I mean, I ran out of money while I was in law school. I lived on uh, $10 a week for food. And uh, I mean, eating canned tuna and uh, eggs and uh, uh, macaroni and learned how to make 15 different combinations of those. And that's how I survived. It has a tendency to shape your character a bit. And I just didn't want my kids to have to go through that struggle. But by the same token... At times, I wonder, did I make it too easy? I guess we'll never know. Yeah. The second thing I wanted to mention is we both watched the movie Air over the weekend and just kind of get some general thoughts. Is it a artistic, great film that's going to be ac- or get accolades? No. Was it fun? Was it entertaining? Was it a, a great vehicle to watch Damon and Aflac interact and act together and do something? Add in Jason Bateman. I mean, I just loved the film for what it was. I didn't try to read more into it than I than what was there. And you know, if you went and tried to think of it more artistically, yeah, there were holes. Some of the characters were a little shallow at times. You know, the storyline could have been better, a little more developed. But so, it was a Saturday night. I'd had a long week, and it was nice to just go and relax and not have to think about anything and just enjoy a story that I was somewhat familiar with that kind of filled in some of the blanks and with some decent acting and some decent story. And uh, so I just enjoyed it, you know. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'd give it a a 7.5 or an 8, just out of pure enjoyment. I agree with you, almost to the letter. I thought the first, because I think it's, what, two hours or just under two hours? Just under two hours. I thought about the first two-thirds of the movie was kind of missing something. It didn't quite have the element, and yet I was still having fun. Because you have a lot of really good actors just being really good actors. The script really wasn't all that great. And to be quite honest, the story was a little hollow. It's the implications of what the story are 
and once you actually involve the meeting that was going to take place, where I think the movie picks up. And so I would say the last 40 to 45 minutes of this movie is what the price of admission is for. I'm glad that this is a movie that went in theaters, even though it doesn't look like it's going to be ultimately successful as a theater revenue generator, but I'm glad it's there and that Amazon took a chance on that. But this was really always going to be a vehicle to put on Amazon Prime, and I think it's going to have a really good shelf life there because there are a lot of people that, you know, next football season, there's a Thursday night football game and it ends, and all of a sudden you're going to get this suggestion for air. And you're going to look at the poster and say, oh, I like Matt Damon. Oh, I like Ben Affleck. Yeah, let's sit down and watch this. Oh, it's about Michael Jordan? Yeah, cool. It's got Viola Davis and Jason Bateman and Chris Messina? Yeah, I'm going to watch this. So it doesn't need to be more than that. It's just a starring vehicle. And I frankly think this is one of these mid-budget type of films. I think it was developed somewhere in the range of like 70 to $90 million that I wish they would make more of that are for people that are, I guess, more cinema fans than that you and I are. They're not the highly artistic film that you mentioned, the ones that have so much depth layering and themes that it's hard to dissect everything just by yourself. It's just an enjoyable movie with a decent story that's going to feel good when you leave the theater. And I'm thankful for this. I was glad I went and saw it. I concur. So that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. I don't want to survive. I want to live. Next week, we are discussing the Best Picture winner of 2012, 12 Years a Slave, directed by Steve McQueen, written by John Ridley, starring Chiwetel Ejiofor, Michael K. Williams, Michael Fassbender, Benedict Cumberbatch, Paul Dano, Paul Giamatti, Brad Pitt, Sarah Paulson, and Lupita Nyong'o. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnyduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 